everybody, welcome to The Briefing Room. I'm ABC's Devin Dwyer in Washington. Great to have you with us on this Wednesday. A lot to get into. We'll look ahead to the Mueller report coming out tomorrow. We'll also talk about some new developments down on the border crisis. And also, we'll get to know the 2019 Pulitzer Prize winner for editorial cartoons, the first African-American ever to win that award since 1922. So stay tuned for that. But first, I'm joined by our chief justice correspondent, Pierre Thomas, our investigative reporter, Catherine Falders, to talk a little bit more about what's in store tomorrow. Guys, let's remind everybody what the Mueller report is, what we are actually going to get our hands on. I think we have a graphic. Here it is. It's actually titled, it's a mouthful, it's the report on the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. <laughs> it's 400 pages. That's <laughs> another one. Uh, it's divided into two sections, according to Bill Barr. It's collusion section, obstruction section. Of course, he says that it will be color-coded with a whole bunch of redactions. So, Pierre, I guess the big question is, how are we actually going to get the report? How is this going to go down? Well, we will look at a redacted version of the report. And I think it's important for people at home to understand that we've only seen less than 100 words of this 400-page report. And that even though we know the bottom line that there was no conspiracy, uh, that uh, Mueller concluded there was no conspiracy between the Trump campaign and the <clears throat> Russians, there's still a wealth of detail. We're talking about roughly two years worth of investigations in which they're going to lay out, here's what the Russians did, here's how they did it, uh, how much impact did they have on the election, uh, what were they trying to accomplish, how pervasive was it, who in the Trump world were in contact with the Russians, and some sense of why they chose not to charge uh, anyone in connection with a, an actual conspiracy. Then there's the obstruction part in terms of what the president did or didn't do that gave Mueller pause. He did not exonerate the president. Uh, there were things on the pro side in terms of it being obstruction of justice and some things on the side of it not being. But he could not come to a conclusion. And I think one of the biggest questions that we have going forward is why couldn't Mueller come to a conclusion on that issue. And so, Catherine, you're going to be one of the people reading this report, pouring into it uh, mm -hmm. tomorrow morning when, when it comes out. And you're going to be looking at the facts, to Pierre's point. We know the conclusions, but there are so many raw facts, hundreds of pages of testimony, interviews, yeah. witnesses, warrants, raw information. And I think the biggest question I have is that obstruction question. Right. And I think perhaps we can expect um, Barr and Mueller's report to lay out um, examples or, or not examples. He said there was both sides of the issue will be available for us to read um, unless there are any redactions in that portion. But I also think the other thing to really take a look at, at least what I'm gathering from some folks who have spoken to Mueller from sources inside the White House, is they all seem to be really interested in what Don McGahn, the president's former White House counsel, told Robert Mueller. Now, why are they interested in him? Well, he was there for many crucial Events, whether it was the firing of Comey, uh, perhaps the floating of firing Jeff Sessions. But he also is the White House official who sat with Mueller for the longest time. He was in there for over 30 hours. So obviously, so we're going to be looking for that to, to be paying close that. attention. It's also important to note that this is the first time the public will be able to read this report as Mueller has really conducted a lot of his work in secret. And hopefully, try to make some sense of it with all those <laughs> color coded redactions in there. The Attorney General did say that grand jury material, classified material, a potentially disparaging material of non-charged people will be withheld, among other stuff. So we'll have to be making sense of that. I guess big picture, Pierre, one question people have headed into tomorrow is now that we know the top lines here, we hear the president say he's exonerated. We hear even Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic speaker, say uh, she doesn't think impeachment is a priority, given what Bill Barr has said. Why should we care about what's coming out tomorrow? 
I think transparency. This is one of the most important investigations conducted since Watergate because there were aspects that did involve the president of the United States. Uh, we're going to want to know what did Mueller find in terms of specifics about how the Russians operated. Now, we know a lot of that from the indictments of the Russian hackers, uh, the indictments of the people that were involved in the Russian troll farm, but whatever else he adds in terms of the narrative, in terms of, you know, what they were trying to accomplish, what this argues in terms of the future, in terms of them attempting to hack us again. Again, uh, we will get information about people that were indicted, uh, but what about the, the people that they investigated but chose not to charge? There might be some be information. Some of the most interesting, that, I think. You know, for example, uh, Don Jr.'s meeting in Trump Tower uh, about with the Russian uh, operatives. What did Mueller conclude about that? Is that in, in, in the report? We don't know the answer to that, but if it's in there, trust me, we'll be reading that very closely. Um, so the bottom line of it, when you have an investigation of this magnitude involving so many people, where an election was impacted to a degree or not, I think it's in everyone's interest to want to know as much as we can about what did the investigator, what did one of the top prosecutors in modern history, what did he find? And do you think we'll actually hear from Robert Mueller tomorrow? We don't. Ex he's not going to come out and give a press conference. If himself. it's true to form, <laughs> the report will do the talking. He he's not uttered a word publicly right. in Perhaps nearly two coming years. Coming attractions. We'll see. All right. Before we let you guys go, we ha did get some questions uh, from some folks visiting town today. It's spring break season here in Washington, so a lot of people from around the country. Our Erica King was out on the mall. She caught up uh, with Celine Alaskomuka from Virginia, who had this question. My question is, where can I find the report? All right, that's a basic one, Catherine. Well, where can we find the report when it comes out tomorrow? Well, it's, it's 400 pages. quite possible. It's 400 pages. It's quite possible that it could be posted on a, a website, right, Pierre? Is that where right. the general public will be able well, to, to find it? One thing they can count on is that <laughs> once the press gets their redacted version, we will post the thing. I'm, sh I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, we expect that Congress will be given uh, copies of the redacted version. I'm sure, certain that the House ju and Judiciary mm -hmm. Committees will probably post it as and well. Publishing houses, I think, on Amazon.com exactly. are already lining up to, uh, you can buy a printed <laughs> now, copy whether in whether that advance site crashes will, you know, we'll to be determined. All right, let's take the next one from Cornell Burton uh, of Michigan. He had this question. My question would be, what is the problem with letting or demanding at this point that Barr release this report to Congress as well as to the American people with no redactions whatsoever? There's some sensitivities in here, Pierre. Mm -hmm. Well, Part of it is the Justice Department and the way they operate. The rules are that they typically do not release grand jury material. Yeah. They can That's go a federal to, law. Right, they can go to a court. Um, and, and get that change in specific instances, but that's department guidelines. Uh, they typically uh, will not release information and get, go to counterintelligence methods and sources because obviously that affects our ability to gather information. Um, another category involves ongoing investigations. If it's going to impact any kind of ongoing investigation, we're not going to see that. And then the final category are people who are considered lower level and incidental to the investigation it's unlikely that we're going to see much about those kind of people. Yes, so, uh, certainly some of the speculation and suspicions, conspiracy theorists will have a heyday, yeah. no doubt, <laughs> with some of those redactions. But the fight continues with Congress, for sure. Finally today, Lori McKinley of California had one more question for Pierre. My question is, do we need to be spending this volume of tax dollars on this report? Lori sort of channeling sort of a frustration of many Americans. We see it in the polls, too, that so much money, time, expense has gone into this thing. 
did it really do any good? Well, let's look at this from a strictly journalistic point of view. Uh, the intelligence community found and Mueller agreed and concluded that the Russians did hack the DNC, that they did hack a John Podesta, who was Clinton's campaign chairman, that they did use a, a troll farm in Russia to funnel fake news, funnel fake advertisements into the American uh, public in order to sow divisions. There were issues along racial lines. There were issues along uh, about immigration. If for no other reason than that, I think it was worth us knowing as much as possible. That was really about the precipitant happened. of this whole investigation, even before Donald Trump got in the mix and on right. the radar. They and, were looking at the Russians. And, and part of it, look, this has become such a hyperpartisan town, and that people get so caught up into the politics. But the fact that the Kremlin decided to attempt to interfere. Uh, in our election is something everyone should think about. And we will get into all that tomorrow. I know you guys both will be digging into the report. You'll be part of our special coverage here on ABC News Live, led by George Stephanopoulos uh, on all ABC stations. As soon as it comes out, Pierre will be leading the charge over at the Justice Department as well, one of the first, we think, maybe to get a look at the report. So, Pierre Thomas, thank you so much. Catherine Falders, uh, thank you both. Moving on now to some two major developments down at the southern border uh, in the last 24 hours as the administration tries to get its arms around the humanitarian security crisis that's unfolding there. A new measure overnight signed by the attorney general cracking down on asylum seekers who are uh, claiming a credible fear of persecution. Attorney General Bill Barr says those people, some of those people, could be kept behind bars for years or months. Let's go to our Jordan Phelps, who's over at the White House, been tracking this development. Jordan, um, help us understand what exactly the administration is trying to do here with this new policy. Yeah, Devin, so we often hear the president decry this practice of catch and release. You've heard him say it before, you catch him and then you release him. But Devin, there's actually something to that because the government can't just hold all of these asylum seekers on end. Um, and so what happens is they do get released inside the country and until they come back for their uh, for their day in court in front of immigration uh, judges. And what this policy would do is make it harder for a lot of these people to get bail. So it would give uh, the authority for a lot of these people who are applying asylum to be held um, without being released. Uh, so there wouldn't be that release portion of this. But Devin, this is already being challenged by immigrants' rights groups. Uh, we've heard the ACLU uh, tell the administration, we will see you in court, uh, that this is circumventing the due process uh, system in this country. Let's talk a little bit more about that process with Frances Arroyo. She joins us now uh, via Skype. She is an immigration attorney. Frances, great to see you. You deal with uh, a good number of immigrants that are making asylum claims in court. Um, what's your reaction to this decision by the department, and, and, and what are the sort of the real-world implications for a lot of these people who are actually fleeing difficult situations? Well, it's really no surprise. We've seen it happen. There's an attack on the border by this president. And what this case essentially says is that those people that are asking for asylum that are at the border and are placed in expedited removal proceedings and thereafter have a favorable, de favorable determination of their credible fear interview have no longer the right to ask for a bond. And this is a big problem because what it's doing is sending a message to those people that are requesting asylum at the border and saying, hey, you're going to be locked up. You won't have the right to a bond, and that's how we're going to treat you. People that are coming into the country 
fleeing persecution, fleeing gang violence, fleeing, fleeing domestic violence. So as immigration attorneys, we're ready for this. We're ready to fight this in federal courts. And like the ACLU said, we'll see you in court. John Cohen, a former DHS official who dealt with immigration policy, uh, is, joins us on the phone. John, great to have you in this conversation. You've been uh, closely involved in border policy for a long time. How significant is this move, in your view, in the sweep uh, of American treatment of asylum seekers? Yeah, it's important for a few reasons. One, it seems it's part of what has been a continuing effort rhetorically by the administration to paint those people, those families that are fleeing violence, fleeing persecution, fleeing corrupt environments, seeking the protection of the United States as, as criminals. Um, and, you know, that's just simply not the case. Yes, we have to be careful to only allow those people with a credible fear claim to pursue the asylum process. Yes, we have to vet people coming uh, to the border, seeking entry into the country to make sure criminals and terrorists uh, are not allowed in. But the idea that People seeking protection as allowed under international and U.S. law are somehow criminals uh, is just not accurate, and it's not helpful from an operational perspective. The second issue, real quickly, is that as we learned with zero tolerance, we only have limited detention space, right, uh, whether it's immigration detention or criminal justice detention. So if we're going to book more of these people seeking asylum, we're not going to have room for more violent criminals. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, John, because on the one hand, the administration says the facilities are at capacity, they're having to release people, and yet here they're imposing a policy which would seemingly detain more, um, and yet it also cuts against the fact that so many of these migrants are families and children, which by law cannot be held for an extended period of time. Yeah, there's a reason why um, serious law enforcement professionals uh, are very wary of the use of zero-tolerance programs. Um, you know, the reality is, as, as I said earlier, law enforcement organizations, whether they be border control or uh, law enforcement in our communities, you only have a limited amount of resources. You have a limited number of people. You have a limited amount of jail space. You have a limited amount of, uh, you know, associated resources. So you focus those resources on uh, individuals that pose the greatest risk. So but this administration seems to apply um, a high-risk evaluation uh, to families that are seek simply trying to find a better life in a less violent environment. And from a law enforcement perspective, from a law enforcement perspective, that just really doesn't make sense. John Cohen, thank you so much. And, and, and Francis Arroyo, uh, back to you, immigration attorney, again, someone who deals with these asylum seekers. I guess I want to just put to you what, the administration's claim on this, that uh, while there may be some legitimate fear claims among these asylum seekers, is there anything to their argument that many among this large number showing up at the border are simply faking it? They know the words to say to get into this country and then and then simply released? Look, I don't believe that to be true. As an immigration attorney, we always talk to our clients and we, the first thing we tell them is you need to tell the truth. There are people that are trained in the Department of Homeland Security and ICE to conduct these credible fear interviews. They're experts at what they do, and that is what it is, or whether you are credible or not. So a fake asylum claim is probably not going to work. You have the right to ask for asylum, but the cases that do get through are people that will be eligible for asylum and that have a legitimate fear of returning. And it's very important to be able for these people to eventually get a bond hearing because they need to... Um, you know, go to doctors, they need to get psychological evaluations, they need access to an attorney. These are things that are going to be very difficult to obtain from somebody that's just coming into this country if they're detained. 
All right, Francis Arroyo, thank you so much for joining us from California. Immigration attorney, great perspective on that issue. And continuing on the same theme overnight, in addition to the policy, the attorney general unveiled a bipartisan commission, the Homeland Security Advisory Council, set up by the Trump administration to give it suggestions on how to improve conditions at the border, was out with a new report. Let's put up uh, what they recommended. It was received by the Department of Homeland Security. This advisory group of Republicans and Democrats, experts in law enforcement, suggested that the Trump administration create new processing centers, increase some medical care for these immigrants, also expedite the court hearings to get them moving through the system, and, uh, and also asking, interestingly, to allow families and children to be held a little bit longer uh, and uh, and have their data collected so they can track these families uh, as they await the hear their, their claims. Jordan Phelps joins us again from the White House. Jordan, uh, very interesting response from the Department of Homeland Security to some of those recommendations. Yeah, absolutely. We're hearing from the acting secretary of DHS a real openness uh, to this idea, openness to the proposals that were listed here. Uh, but Devin, kind of going back to our previous discussion, what we're really seeing here from the administration is a kitchen sink approach, throwing everything at the wall to see what will stick here. Uh, we know that the president is deeply frustrated with this issue. Uh, it was a lot of the reason why we saw uh, Secretary Nielsen head for the exits just recently. Uh, so this is a president who needs to see his administration taking steps, taking action. Uh, and this is just one more in a series of proposals we've seen, Devin. Yeah, Jordan Phelps, thanks so much. We'll see if they actually take up any of those recommendations. Some of them have been on the table for quite some time, uh, and this president has not uh, taken them kindly. Jordan Phelps, thanks so much. Shifting gears now to a crisis of a different kind in this country, the opioid crisis that's ravaging much of the middle of the country in Appalachia. The uh, Justice Department announcing this morning a major victory for government forces looking to roll back uh, the illicit spread of those opioid drugs. Our uh, justice reporter Luke Barr is here. Uh, Luke, uh, you've been pouring into this indictment. This caught our eye here at ABC News Live because it is a big one. Sixty people charged in this sweep? Devin, you're it's 60 people charged, more than half uh, doctors, medical professionals, nurse practitioners. Uh, so these aren't drug dealers, traffickers. No. These are actually doctors. No, I mean, okay. it, the Justice Department points out in one indictment uh, unsealed today, uh, two doctors uh, overprescribed uh, opioids, and that's a, a big uh, thing that the Justice Department is now seeing uh, is that doctors over prescribing yeah. and it's a it's a problem. I, I was struck in the indictment they said that the number of people, mm -hmm. you said 60 doctors here, were responsible for over 350,000 fraudulent prescriptions, yeah. millions yep. of pills yeah. out there floating around. 32 million pills, Devin. Uh, I mean, just an astounding amount. Now, now some of these uh, indictments are a little bit older. Uh, the Justice Department likes to likes to bring these uh, together and, and raise awareness for them. But but I, I just want to point out one uh, indictment, one uh, case that really struck me is a gentleman called the Rock Doc. He, he prescribed over three, uh, 300,000 Oxycontin pills wow. over a, a three-year period. And he was one of the ones arrested. And he was one of the runs that, that was arrested. He was in Tennessee. Tennessee also had sort of the largest number of, uh, of of arrests uh, throughout the entire wow. state. So, wow. and this went from this was five states. This was Alabama to Louisiana, Pennsylvania. A big sweep. Uh, big sweep. And West Virginia and Ohio were also included. In, and those two are two of the uh, hotbed of uh, the opioid problem, as we're seeing. Luke Barr, thank you so much for that reporting. Speaking of West Virginia, let's go now to West Virginia, where Dr. Joanna Bailey joins us. She's a medical doctor uh, who serves a lot of clients in the Appalachia region, uh, and especially in her community in West Virginia. Dr. Bailey, thanks so much. You've been uh, here with us on ABC News Live before. I want to get your reaction uh, both to this news and also get your take on the role that doctors and medical professionals play 
play. Are you seeing in your community um, some of this illegal activity? Are these drugs spreading by doctors? Hi, and thanks for having me again. Um, I would have to say that as far as a medical professional, um, and as far as these medications coming from doctors, um, while there are still plenty of bad apples out there that um, that we kind of need to purge and move away from, the vast majority of physicians have moved away from prescribing narcotics for chronic pain and mm -hmm. are following the current CDC guidelines um, in terms of narcotic prescribing. In fact, since about 2009, the um, prescriptions of these medications have been declining, uh, particularly in West Virginia, and West Virginia follows the national trend in that department. So, um, so it sounds like it's something you actively try to avoid when treating your patients. You try to not give them uh, OxyContin and the like. Absolutely, absolutely. I don't think I've ever prescribed Oxycontin to anybody. Oh, wow. And, and what's your sense? You know, we talked to you a few weeks ago. Um, we, we were talking about the impacts the crisis is having in West Virginia, the people that you're treating firsthand. Um, do you have the sense that we've turned a corner yet? I don't know that we've yet turned that corner, but I think we're moving in the right direction. Um, we've definitely moved further from physicians prescribing those medications, more toward physicians treating chronic pain um, through medication-assisted treatment programs and other various routes, um, rather than using, you know, treating addiction rather than treating chronic pain. And what sort of support do you need, Joanna, uh, as we just wrap up here, um, continuing in this fight? We've heard uh, calls from your state for more resources, more federal funding to help fight the opioid crisis. Uh, but what's most urgent right now? I think more funding and more providers. And really, our problem here is primarily, in my opinion, an economic issue. Um, we we are in need of uh, better transportation and more job opportunities in this area so that we have fewer people self-medicating with these medications when actually what they're feeling is hopelessness related to the poor economy. And we wish you all the best, Dr. Joanna Bailey, uh, joining us from West Virginia, someone on the front lines treating her patients and also the community there as this opioid crisis continues. Dr. Bailey, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, finally, today here in the briefing room, uh, we take a look at the 2019 Pulitzer Prizes. The Pulitzer Prize Board uh, released their award winners this year earlier in the week, uh, and we caught up with Darren Bell. He was the first ever African American winner of the Pulitzer Prize for editorial cartooning. He's a cartoonist for the Washington Post. He joins us live now from California. Darren, congratulations uh, on winning the Thank prize. You. It's great to see you, sir. Uh, I was struck by the committee's um, uh, their words in describing your work, they awarded you the Pulitzer Prize for beautiful and daring editorial cartoons that take on issues affecting disenfranchised communities, calling out lies, hypocrisy, and fraud, and the political turmoil surrounding the Trump administration. That is a lot. What does this recognition mean to I was struck by the words, too. <laughs> What's it feel like to be a Pulitzer Prize winner? Um, it's, it's a huge honor. It's, it's a lot of um, it's a big moment of validation. Um, it's been a long time coming, and I'm I'm grateful that they that they recognize my work. We're seeing some of your work on the screen. I'm sure some of our viewers would be familiar with it. It's syndicated. It appears in print uh, in all across the country. What, what's it? What's it? You hope that people take away uh, from your cartoons? 
Um, I I hope they take away that we need to be more respectful of human dignity. Um, that's the common thread that I try to weave through every cartoon I draw, whether it's about police brutality, um, about immigrants being separated from their children, um, or whether it's about Donald Trump. And so many of the, the cartoons we were seeing, if we can just put a couple of those back up, um, did relate to the president. They, they also have a touch, touch on a theme that has been running through our politics in the past couple of years, Darren, and I hope you can sort of flush this out for us. You, you draw a lot of inspiration from some of the racial tension uh, in this country and some of the incidences, including the Trayvon Martin case of a few years back, um, that have become such big flashpoints in our politics. Well, the, the Trayvon Martin case is actually um, why I got back into editorial cartooning. I'd retired for a few years to focus on my comic strip, Canderville. Um, but when, when he was killed, I dealt with it in Canderville. Um, but a year later, when the trial happened, the George Zimmerman trial sort of turned into the Trayvon Martin trial. Um, people, people were quick to, to assume that he, that he did everything that George Zimmerman said he did because um, it's expected of him, just because of the way he looks or where he comes from. And I think, what, I think it's important that, that, um, that people challenge their preconceived notions, that they ask themselves, why, do I, why am I so quick to believe this? Um, and I, I, that's what I try to remind people to do with my work. It certainly is thought-provoking and does challenge a lot of preconceived notions from the pieces that I've seen of yours, uh, Darren. And I guess before we let you go, I've, I personally have always been a, a fan of editorial cartoons, a subscriber of newspapers, but uh, it, it certainly is a niche art uh, in our politics and in our journalism. Um, why do you think it needs to be continued? Why is editorial cartooning as a genre so important in our country? It's, it's important because People are hardwired to respond to images. It goes all the way back to cave paintings, to hieroglyphics. Um, we've had editorial cartoons for hundreds of years, and we're gonna, they're, they're gonna be here long after we're gone. Um, I don't think it's a niche art. I think it's the first thing people turn to when they open the newspaper. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> I stand corrected. It sure is. Uh, a lot of people do go right to the cartoons or, or the editorial page, for that matter, where your work often appears, especially in the Washington Post. Uh, Darren Bell, a cartoonist for the Post, a syndicated editorial cartoonist, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, the first ever African-American recipient of that award since uh, it was launched in 1922. Thank you so much, Darren, for joining us here on ABC News Live. Thank you for having me. Uh, and thanks to all of you for joining us here in the briefing room on this very busy Wednesday. A big day tomorrow. Special coverage uh, here of the Robert Mueller special counsel report on the Russia investigation released uh, tomorrow morning at some point. We'll go up with live coverage here and have uh, that coverage led by George Stephanopoulos and the entire ABC News team. Hope you tune in uh, here on that app or on ABCNews.com. I'm Devin Dwyer in Washington. We'll see you tomorrow.